we exist to come alongside people who are hurting, who are broken, who are messed up, to come alongside them and give them love and to give them grace and to give them encouragement until they can rise above it and walk on that path on their own. We are Pathway Church, located in Burleson, Texas. We worship together, we serve together, and we grow together. Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here with you guys. However you are joining us, if you're online, you're at the bridge, you're in the house, in the sanctuary, wherever you are. Hey, listen, I know Jeff already mentioned it, but I I really want to highlight something here because I think this is really important. Jeff mentioned we are in a historic year in the life of the church. This is 50 years and, and I know we celebrate that, we'll continue to celebrate that, but I, just, I, I want to point out something. In, in a world where things come and they go and they come and they go, things uh, think they're going to last and then they don't last, they fizzle out, in, in this entire context that we find ourselves in, here we are in the midst of all of that, and we see that we are a part of something that God has been sustaining, has been a vision, a mission of God in this community for 50 years and beyond. We're, we're still going. God is still using this place, and we get to be a part of it. And when I think about that, I'm humbled that I get to call this place my church home. I'm glad that you get to call it your church home as well. And I think, I just, I reflect how different my life would be right now if I haven't, if I hadn't experienced God the way that I have because of this place, how God has used this space to minister to me, to minister to so many of you, And I look forward to years to come about how God continues to use this place to to communicate his message of love to the world. So this is a historic year. uh, And and because of that, because of so many other reasons, I'm I'm excited to get to be here with you guys today. Uh, Today, we're finishing up the series that we've been in on things that the, the Bible does not say. So as we begin this time, I want to just fire off a few quick stories to get us going. And the first goes back to my, uh, it was my senior year of college. I was at TCU at the time. I lived in a house close to campus. Uh, I wake up that morning. My roommate wakes me up and he's telling me something horrible has just happened. And I'm not quite sure what he's talking about. So finally he, he turns the TV on and he says, Chris, just, just look. And I turned my head to the screen and I look and I watch in horror as I see two towers in New York hit the ground. Now, classes were canceled that day, but my roommates and I, we still went to campus anyway just because we wanted to be around our friends. We wanted to process what we were seeing, what was happening. What did that mean, you know, for our world today, tomorrow, moving on? Because we knew that was going to be a big shift in our world. We knew. We weren't sure how, but we just, we knew. And so I'm in the music school on campus, and I'm visiting with my friends, and I find myself in this one circle of people. And as we're processing, somebody in that circle utters that infamous phrase. They say, you know, everything happens for a reason. Okay. Fast forward a few years. It's the same time of year. It's in the fall of 2007. I'm in my office. And I get a phone call, and it's from my mom, and she's a wreck. She's crying uncontrollably. Her husband of 21 years, my stepdad, had just informed her that he would be leaving her for another woman. Now, my poor mom, she had just turned 50. 
And at that moment, she was dealing with the gradual loss of her mom because of dementia. She would now have to deal with those things alone with the added feeling of inadequacy. As I'm processing this, I had a well-intentioned friend tell me, well, you know, Chris, everything happens for a reason. May of 2012, we get a call up at the church from a family in the church. They had a, a brand new baby boy that they were having to rush to the hospital because he stopped breathing. And shortly after, Aiden Taylor, this brand new baby boy, dies. I remember playing that funeral. It was one of the saddest funerals I've ever been asked to play at. And as I'm there, before the service, I'm listening to people visit and talk about what was going on. I hear somebody just outside in the foyer say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Okay. All right. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before, because I'm just going to guess everybody here at one point in time or another, we've heard this phrase. And when do we hear it? We hear it when something really bad has happened. I mean, we, it's not something you say, somebody wins the lottery, you don't say, hey, everything happens for a reason. That's not when we say it. We say it when something really bad happens because it's intended to be a coping mechanism, supposed to provide comfort. But what I'll tell you in those three stories that I mentioned, especially the first one in, in 2001, because at that point, my journey with God, I was, I was far from God at that point in my life. This phrase, everything happens for a reason, it didn't provide me comfort. Quite the opposite. As I, as I wrestled with and thought about this, this image of so many innocent lives violently being taken from the world, the idea that, that God needed that to happen, it, it did not provide me comfort. It, it provided me with anger, with frustration, with confusion. No comfort. And that question of things happening for a reason, it would, it would continue to haunt me for years to come as I wrestled with God over this issue. Now, eventually, I find out this phrase, everything happens for a reason, turns out it's not in here. This book doesn't say that. It just doesn't. Now, you could argue there are parts of this book that maybe point kind of sort of in that general direction, maybe, but that phrase never appears that way in this book. Now, before we go any further about what this book does and doesn't say, let's take just a moment and center ourselves in God in prayer. Father God, we quiet our minds. We quiet our souls. And we listen for you. Because, Father, without your voice, these are just words on a page. That's all they are. But when your spirit inhabits them and when your spirit inhabits us, this word comes alive in us and in our world. And, Father, that's the living word that we are seeking this morning. So, Father, inhabit us, inhabit the space, inhabit your word inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. In your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Job. 
If, uh, if you're early on in your journey, just so you have a reference point, it's about, if you go halfway and just a little bit that way, you'll be in the book of Job. And just a heads up, we're going to be flipping around a lot today. So if you can't keep up, we'll make sure we have uh, the scripture on the screen as well. Now, as you're turning there, I just want to ask, why, why do we hear this phrase so often? Everything happens for a reason. Why do we hear it so often? One word, control. We are control freaks. That's who we are. Admit it or not, that's who we are. We want to control our world as much as we possibly can. This is why we have locks on our doors, alarm systems, safety measures, security mechanisms, all of these things, insurance policies. We have all of these things in place to do the best we can to control our world. And when something happens, something really bad happens, something that that goes out of bounds of all of the safety mechanisms that we have in place, our human nature becomes desperate to try to create some sort of a category to put that event into so that we can lie to ourselves and pretend like we have some measure of control, even though the tragedy suggests that we don't. So in your notes, this this phrase, everything happens for a reason, it creates the illusion that we have control. Because if everything happens for a reason and God is in control, all I have to do is play by the rules and I'll be okay, right? Because now I have some measure of control, even if it's a, a degree or two of separation. You see, this myth also accomplishes something else. And you notice number two, it allows us to place blame on others when they experience trials. And this is exactly what we find in the book of Job. This is how his story begins. I want to pick up there at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so here at the very beginning, the writer's being very clear to point something out to us. In the second sentence of the entire book, he makes a point to say, Job was blameless and upright. So this is foreshadowing. He's letting us know something bad is about to happen to Job. And his character is going to be called into question because of it. So here's Job's story. I'll paraphrase the first couple of days of his story as we find it here. Day one, Job loses all of his oxen, his donkeys, and his servants in the field. They all die except for one servant. And this is a servant who survives, who's able to go to Job and give him the bad news about all that he's lost. But the day continues. As the servant finishes delivering this message, another messenger shows up. And this messenger comes to let Job know that all of his sheep have been burned up by the fire. But the story continues. When he finishes, another messenger shows up, and he lets him know that the Chaldeans have come and stolen all of his camels. 
But Job's day isn't over yet. As this messenger finishes, another one arrives, and he lets Job know that all of his sons and daughters are dead because a mighty wind has destroyed the home that they were dining in. This is all in one day, one day. And then on the second day, Job becomes stricken with sores that cover his entire body, head to toe. This is a bad, bad day for Job. He's somebody who, by all appearances, is cursed by God. At least that's what his friends thought. You see, when when Job goes through this tragedy, he's visited by three friends. The first friend, Eliphaz, he offers some thoughts on this this evil that Job is experiencing. So there in in chapter 4, this is Eliphaz talking to Job. In verse 7, he says this. He says, Job, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. He's saying, hey, Joe, you reap what you sow. That's... That's just how it is. Why fight it? Everything happens for a reason. You've done something wrong to anger God, and God is now disciplining you. Like, this is the time to not throw a pity party, Job. This is the time to admit what you've done. Turn to God. Say you're sorry. In this madness. But Eliphaz doesn't doesn't stop there. He he goes on. Chapter 5, verse 17, he says this. Blessed is the man... Whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. Eliphaz is saying, Hey, Job, consider it a blessing that God is disciplining you. Consider it a blessing that your kids are dead. Consider it a blessing that you've lost your property, you've lost your animals, you've lost everything. That's a good thing because God is disciplining you. Smile, Job, this is good. In your notes, everything happens for a reason. It does something else. Number three, it makes us feel better about someone else's loss. Now, just remember, Job's lost everything. He's lost his kids, his animals, his property. And Eliphaz is telling him, consider it a blessing. Why? Because everything happens for a reason. If any of you were ever looking for a textbook case on how not to offer comfort or care to somebody in tragedy, that's it. Don't do that. This is a bad plan. This is a bad idea. See, here's the reality. One of the most important lessons we get from the book of Job, and there's a lot. There's a lot that you can get from Job. We're just getting a tiny little bite. But one of the lessons that we get is this. Sometimes bad things just happen. They happen to good people. They happen to bad people. Sometimes the bad that you experience, it's not the consequences of your own actions, but of somebody else's. And it's, it's a hard lesson, but it's a lesson that, that Job's friends weren't aware of. They didn't know. You see, for Eliphaz, his worldview, it was constructed in this way where good things happen to good people. 
And when bad things happen, God is disciplining you. That's just how it works. And so everything for Eliphaz, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything happens for a reason. And believe it or not, it's a framework that we still use today, whether we realize it or not. So as I'm preparing for this uh, message, I'm, I'm just doing a dive to try to figure out where is this coming from? Where are we drawing this idea from that this is somehow a biblical concept? And I, I find Romans chapter 8. So in your Bibles, I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 8. And I want to read to you there in verse, verse 28. This is Paul talking. He says this. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let me read this again. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I, I want that phrase to sink in, in all things. If you got your Bibles out, underline that phrase, in all things. See, when we open this book, we actually come upon some really powerful promises. And the promise that we get from this verse, from this passage is this, in your notes, number one, God is in all things. See, Paul isn't telling us that God is causing all things. He's reminding us that no matter what, God is in all things. And not only that, God doesn't stop working for the good. Now, when we read that, we, we, we read that phrase, for those called according to his purpose... It's, it's a mistake for us to take our worldview and impose it onto Paul. Because when we read that, if I were to say something in this room about those of you that are called, the way our minds work, we're thinking, okay, so which one? Which one of us is called? Which ones of us are called? Because we think in an in individual basis, but that's not how Paul thinks. He's not thinking in those terms. He's thinking collectively. So when he's talking about for those who have been called, he's talking about the entire nation of Israel. And what are they being called? Are they being called to a life of privilege, a life of, of ease? <laughs> not at all. Read the book and you'll know that being called by God is, is, is not a privilege. It's not a life of privilege. It's the life of servanthood, a life of serving no matter what. And that's who we are. This is our heritage, the nation of Israel, the church. We are the ones that God has called to communicate God's message of love to the world. And one of the many things that we learn from Jesus on the cross is that when the world hears the message of love, they don't always respond in kind. Jesus puts it this way. In John chapter 16, or yeah, John 16, verse 33, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's not saying he's causing the trouble we experience, that he's creating conflict for you just so you can get stronger. He simply says, in this world, you will have trouble. And he says it after he spends a few verses talking about the trouble he's going to experience. But he doesn't stay there. He doesn't, he doesn't stay with the conflict. He finishes with a powerful promise that reminds us Jesus has overcome the world. 
Now, I don't, I don't know where you are this morning, but I'm going to venture a guess at least one person here and probably more. When you read that, you connect with that because you think, that's me. I'm, <laughs> that's my world right now. I am experiencing trouble, and I don't know why. I don't know why this is happening to me. Maybe, maybe you did everything that was asked of you. You did it with honesty. You did it with integrity. And yet, you still find yourself without a job. Or maybe you have a friendship, and you care for this friend deeply, and they were doing something that, that you, you knew was going to be harmful. And out of love, you spoke truth into their life, and now they hate you for it. Maybe you did everything that your spouse asked you. You did everything to, to create a loving home. But in spite of all of that, you still find yourself divorced or going through a divorce. Jesus tells us, don't be surprised. Don't get caught off guard if the world hates you when you talk about the love of God. Remember, it hated me first. You see, you aren't being punished for it. God isn't putting you through a trial just to do it. He's, God doesn't save his biggest trials for his biggest warriors. That, that's not how it works. The reality is this. And, and we get this from the book of Job. And some, many of you, if not all, can relate to this. Sometimes there are just those seasons of life that plain suck. They just do. And there's no better way to put it than that. That it's just pain and suffering. That's all it is. But Jesus says, in the middle of all of this, take heart. I have overcome the world. And he says this before he goes to the cross. And he knows it's coming. But God doesn't stop there. God gives us some more promises that, that we need to understand. In your notes, number two, we have the gift of free will. This is very important for us to, to remember, to hold on to. God is in all things, in all of them, even the things that have been brought about because of the choices that we make. The situations that we create because of this great gift of free will that we have. And this is clear throughout Scripture. At the very beginning, one of the first things that we read in this book. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then Jesus puts it this way over in John chapter 7. Verse 16, or sorry, verse 17. It says, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus is telling us. And God tells us, and tells us time and time again, clearly, we have a choice. We have a choice to do the will of God or not. And sometimes we make poor choices. We take good things and we put them together in a way that produces something that's not good, that causes harm, that causes chaos. So when I was a kid, I, I ordered a pizza for the house. Okay, I order a pizza and it arrives early. It gets there before the rest of my family is there. And I'm, I'm a generous kid. I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to wait till my family arrives 
and we can all eat together. But you know what would be better is if that pizza was hot and fresh when the family comes home. The oven. The oven keeps things hot and fresh. I know what I'll do. Turn the oven on. Take the pizza. Still in the cardboard box, mind you. Put it in the oven. Close the oven. And I sit back. I just had a momentary feeling of, Chris, you did a good thing. And then smoke comes out of the oven. <laughs> Imagine my surprise when I open it up and the cardboard box is in flames. Pieces of the box are flying out and they're burning the linoleum floor. And so I quickly, I take the pizza box, I get it outside, I extinguish the fire. But what did I do? This is what I did. I took a pizza. A good thing. I took an oven. Also a good thing. And I make a choice to put those together in a way that caused chaos. You see, we have a gift of free will, which can be a wonderful thing, but it can also create chaos in our world. This is exactly what happens with infidelity. We take friendships by themselves, a gift from God. And we take sex, a gift from God. And we make a choice to put them together in a way that creates chaos, that destroys families, that burns down homes in much deeper ways than what a fire can do. And when it happens, we can't look back on that moment and say, everything happens for a reason. Just because God uses something doesn't mean God needs something. Do you understand the difference? See, God can restore your marriage. God can restore your home, but that doesn't give us the right to try to burn it down in the first place. Paul puts it this way. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Here's the promise from God. In your notes, number three, we have a responsibility with free will. Just because we have the ability to do something doesn't mean we need to exercise that freedom. I will tell you, I have the ability to sing Celine Dion. Raise your hand if you want to hear me do it. Your hands should not be raised. This is a bad idea. This is a bad plan. You raise it now in a moment. You're like, wow, I made a huge mistake. In June of 1998, I, I graduated high school in 98. And that summer, we were having a, my friends and I were having a great time. It was a, a lot of fun where we, we knew it wasn't going to last forever. But it was just this interim time period where we don't have any homework, no more school responsibilities. Those are a couple of months away. Uh, but we have unlimited freedom, at least it felt like to us at the time. And, but we also knew that it was short-lived, that eventually we would all go up to college. And whenever we all went our separate ways, we would probably never be back together in that way again. So we, we understood that. We were making the most of it. And then at the end of June, I had a pretty harsh wake-up call. I'm, I'm in bed, and it's in the middle of the night. I don't even really know what time it is, and my mom is waking me up. And she's saying things to me, but I, I'm, in, I'm in this fog because I'm still asleep. 
as I'm slowly waking up, she's still talking. I still don't know what she's saying. And then finally, I'm awake enough to hear her say, honey, Mike has been in a car wreck. Mike is dead. I wake up. One of my best friends, Mike Shire, had been hit by a drunk driver. And he died almost instantly. And the, the driver fled the scene of crime and just left him there. Years later, and even now, I reflect on, on that scene and that evening and this phrase. Everything happens for a reason. So if that's the case, then my friend Mike had to die that way. He had to die tragically before he would ever have a chance to live out the dreams that he had laid out ahead of him, before he'd have a chance to, to make the most of all of the hard work that he put in in his 18 years. And he put in a lot of hard work. He had a promising future. You see, the danger of this phrase, everything happens for a reason, when bad things happen and we say that, what we're doing is we're taking responsibility off of creation and we're putting it onto God. But the promise from God is that we have a responsibility with the gift of free will. We live in a world made up of cause and effect. Today's world has been created by yesterday's choices. Tomorrow's world is being created by today's choices. My friend Mike, he didn't have to die that way. He didn't. He did not have to die that way. That's just the way it happened. Some young man made a poor choice to drink. And then he made another poor, ch poor choice to get behind the wheel. And then another poor choice to leave my friend to just die in the middle of the street. It didn't have to happen that way, but it did. But here's the good news. God's promises, they don't stop there. He gives us something very powerful to hold on to. In your Bibles, I want you to turn over to Isaiah 41. And just, just a little context about what we're jumping into. The Israelite nation, they are completely disillusioned at this point. They're experiencing a world they thought would never happen. For generations, they talked about leaving Egypt, escaping slavery, going through the wilderness, getting to the promised land, having a temple, and being established as, as, as God's people that would reign forever. And that's how it was always going to be. And then it wasn't. The temple is burned down. And the Israelite nation is sent packing, living as exiles. And in the middle of that, God doesn't come to them and say, hey, don't sweat it. Everything happens for a reason. God doesn't say that. This is what God says. In verse 8, he says, but you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you, I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In your notes, God promises this. God is with you no matter what. So the next time you see me and I'm troubled or I'm experiencing tragedy or my world is turned upside down and I don't know what's up and what's down and what's right or left and I can't make sense of anything, 
when you see me, avoid the urge to come up to me and say, hey, Chris, everything happens for a reason. Don't do that. This is what I need. I need you to come up to me and say, Chris, remember Isaiah 41. Remember the promise of God. God is with you. You are God's servant. God chose you. You are a friend of God. God is with you. He will help you. He will uphold you. Because that's the promise I need to hear. That's the promise I need to be reminded of. When everything else in my world is crumbling, I need to be, I need to be reminded that God is with me. It's not going to take away the pain, but it lets me know God's not finished with me yet. God's not finished with the situation yet. There's still a tomorrow. And that's the promise you need to hear. When your world is turned upside down, that's what you want to know. You need to know that God is with you. You are not alone in the pain. And not only that, God's not going to stop working for the good. You see, things aren't broken just so they can be repaired. But when they are broken, God continues to repair. Because that's just what God does. God makes things whole perpetually. That doesn't mean God needs them to be broken in the first place. Look, a mom doesn't need the baby to cry so that the mom can then go and console the baby. That's just what a mom does. And we're broken. What does God do? God repairs. God restores. God heals. That's just what he does. God doesn't need us to be broken. We need God to be repaired. Do you understand the difference? So even though, even though maybe you're, you're in a home that's, that's, that's being torn apart, maybe you're in a marriage that, that is, is falling apart, and, and maybe the world is choosing it for divorce, hear the good news. God chooses it for restoration, for healing. Even though you've got a past that the world points to, and says, look at the shame, look at the guilt. Even though they make that choice, hear the good news. God chooses to take your shame and your guilt and say, we're going to do something good with this. We're going to turn this into a victory for somebody else. Even though you might be experiencing a tragedy that the world looks at and the world chooses to say, you see, this is why there's no God. Because if there's a God, why would this happen? You choose to allow God to redeem that moment to turn into a future victory, a loud and clear message to the world that lets the world know that God is alive, God is love, God heals, that death is not the end. I want to, I want to invite you right now. I want you to think in your world right now, what is, what is that obstacle? What is that thing in your world that's keeping you from holding on to that promise in Isaiah 41 that God is with you no matter what? What is that obstacle? Today, I want, you, I want you to consider, just consider the possibility of, in, instead of saying, why this? God, if, if I'm chosen by you, why this? If I'm your servant, why did this happen? If you were calling me for a purpose, why did this happen? I want to challenge you. Instead of saying, why this? I want you to say, even in spite of this, God, I'm reaching out to your promise. I'm holding on to it no matter what, that even if the world is choosing me for brokenness, I'm holding on to that promise that you are forever at the work of repairing my pain, of restoring me, of healing me. Everything that the world is choosing for brokenness, Father, I'm holding on to that promise that you choose for restoration. Even if the world chooses me for pain, God, I'm holding on to that promise that you choose me for healing. Even if the world chooses me for suffering, 
God, I know you choose me for redemption. Even if the world chooses me for the cross, Father God, I'm holding on to that promise that you choose me for the resurrection. There may be pain in the night, but Father God, I'm doubling down. I know joy is coming in the morning. And hear the good news. Even if you can't make that promise right now, if you can't hold on to it, if you can't claim it, here's the good news. God doesn't wait for your approval to start repairing things. The sun shines, the rain falls, the wind blows, God restores. That's just what he does. It just might take you a little longer to notice the things that you aren't looking for. To a person, I, I can't tell you how, how often I will hear somebody say the world is worse now than it's ever been. And every time I hear that, I know the lens that it's coming from, the person who's allowed the headlines and this device create their worldview. But the problem is, all this will do is show you what's broken. That's it. That's all it's going to show you. But this, when this becomes your lens, when this becomes your worldview, you see what's broken, but that's not all you see. You see what God is doing about it. You start to see the evidence of God. If I went up to you and I said, hey, you know what? I want to take you deer hunting. Let's go, let's go deer hunting. You're like, I've never been deer hunting before. It's a waste of time. It's cold. It's boring. I don't, I, it's, it's a, I'm, not, I'm just not going to do it. I said, no, come on, come on, come on, come with me. And we get out to the woods, and I show you this image. We see this picture, and we look at that. You take one look, and you say, you see, I told you, Chris, it's a waste of time. There's no monster buck there. It's just a bunch of trees. Because you got an untrained eye. You've never done it before. You don't know what to look for. But you see, a trained eye is going to notice something different. They're going to zoom in, and they're going to see that one little tree there in the middle. And they're going to see those buck rubs, and they're going to know, yeah, a deer isn't here, but a deer has been here. They know the evidence. They see it. They know what God is up to. So you want to see the big miracles of God? This will put you on the scent of what God is up to. This will change your worldview. It will change your eyes, your mind, your heart in such a way that you can't help but see what God is up to in the world. I was reminded of that this, this week as I'm preparing. I'm walking outside the campus, and I'm looking around, and I'm just reading through Isaiah 41, and I'm praying. And at one point, I stop, and I take note of where I'm standing. I look in front of me, and what do I see? The community garden. And I think to myself, one of God's many promises, one of God's many solutions to the problem of hunger I look to my right, and I see a prayer garden. And I think to myself, one of God's answers to the problem of pain and grief. And then I look to my left. I don't even know this is happening. I see a sign. This is coming soon. A neighborhood park. And I think to myself, God's answer to the problem of isolation. When you get in here, your lens changes and you see things in ways that you've never seen them before. If I was walking around scrolling my newsfeed, I doubt I would have noticed those things in that way. And it wasn't just by chance that I was there. I could have been anywhere and I would have been able to see the evidence of what God is up to, how God is using people to fix the brokenness that these things talk about. 
as we finish up our series. And you want to know what the Bible does and doesn't say? The answer is very simple. Read it. Open it up. And when you do, you're going to find out, you know, it doesn't say some of the silly things that people think it says. But instead, you're going to find out it says some pretty powerful promises, some things that can really offer comfort. What is it that you truly want to be your refuge, your shield, your strong tower, what you turn to in times of grief and anguish when you're trying to make sense of a broken world? So the ask this week is very simple. Find some time during the day, every day, and you be still. You open this up. And if this isn't something that you read often, just go to Isaiah 41. Read that promise every day, 8 through 10, 8 through 10, every day. Remind yourself of the promise of God that God is with you no matter what. Let's pray. Father, again, we find ourselves in the stillness and know that your power is here, that you are with us, that all the evil in the world cannot outdo your goodness. The pain is temporary, but your love is eternal. Father, for the promise that you are continuing to work for the good and all those that you have called. Father, for the promise that you are with us, no matter what, that you will not leave us, you will not forsake us. promise that you love us, that you have called us, you have chosen us, you call a servant, you call us friend, you call us your child. For these promises and so many more that your living word reminds us of every day, we say thank you. Take the enemy man free, turn it for good, you turn it for good. And Father, we wake up each day looking forward to seeing how you're going to turn a wrong into a right, an evil into a good. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, have a great Sunday. Enjoy the day. Enjoy your family. Get out and exercise. Have fun. And we'll see you next weekend. Thank you for joining us. If you would like more information on Pathway or to get connected to a ministry, visit our website at pathway.church. We look forward to growing with you as we worship together. God loves you. God is with you.